Thank you. Well, it's nice to know by virtue of the announcements that were made that you're going to have a Coke chug. I think right after that you should have a belching contest. I'd find a burpometer somewhere and see if I couldn't hook one up. And then it's nice to know that the senior class is going to be run by anarchy next year. That's good. That's great. Um, I think the best piece of news that I heard, and I sensed the loudest response to, was four weeks left to go before freedom and uh, all that goes with it. Um, but I have a feeling that those four weeks, for some of you, are going to go quickly. For others, they're going to drag. All right, they're going to be. For others, there will be certain parts of those four weeks that will go, and uh, you wish you would have gotten some of those four weeks back. Uh, for others. Four weeks isn't long enough for what you have left in terms of assignments and notebooks and things like that. And in the four weeks, I think one of the things that's going to happen is you're going to look back on this year. And probably you'll look back on it. And for some of you, you will look back through the year and you will see some things where God has done some great things. You've seen some great victories. You entered into, for whatever reason, some kind of major crisis, some kind of potentially uh, critical thing and, and God worked he did a thing he, he worked unmistakably and in the midst of a crisis you not only survived but you overcame and still there is before you something that uh, Chuck Swindoll told someone one time the problem with life is it is so daily and it is it's very daily in fact it is possible for us as believers and uh, my growing experience as a pastor just with people is that many people who know the Lord Jesus can, as a general rule, be expected to come through major crises identified as catastrophic events with flying colors, as a general rule. Sometimes no, but usually yes. But where most brothers and sisters struggle is in the daily. Life is so daily. If you've ever been to San Diego, you can appreciate, at least in battleship form, this little principle. Uh, if any of you have ever gone on the harbor cruise down there and gone into the backwaters behind Coronado Island, you will find ships whose names have been listed in the great battles of the Pacific. Uh, ships that were at Midway, Guadalcanal, Kwajalein. Ships that were involved in Okinawa. Some who were even present at Pearl Harbor and did not get sunk. Some who saw the end of the war and were anchored with the USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay when the Japanese Empire surrendered. Who survived incredible attacks. Who survived incredible warfare. And yet they're sitting in San Diego Bay losing the daily battle. They're rusting away. I don't want that to happen to you. I don't want it to happen to you in the next four weeks. I don't want it to happen to you ever. That you may survive the big battle, but you'll lose the daily one. There was a man in the Old Testament who knew what battle was like. Every day he got up, most of his life was to reveille. All day long was the sound of charge. And he went to bed at night to taps. Turn to Joshua chapter 14, if you would. As you come to the close of the book of Joshua, most of you know, I hope, that it's the story, it's the record of the children of Israel taking what was theirs by God's design. 
God's design sometimes was very unique. They did not do it without failure. At some of the major points in their life as a nation in this book, they experienced failure. One of the most noted ones that's easy to spell but hard sometimes to understand was the battle of the city of Ai. Ai. It was there that in overconfidence after the walls of Jericho and the dust of that city was still not quite settled, the spies returned to Joshua and indicated to him not to worry. There's only uh, a small force compared to Jericho. Already these slaves turned soldiers had become overconfident. And 36 casualties were suffered in the first battle of Ai. And Joshua was taken by God again back to that place after he confessed to the Lord, God, you know that we're dead ducks. Not only did we get beat at Ai, but if the word travels among these Hittites, parasites, and all these ites up here, that we are basically yellow, we turned and ran in the face of the leaders of Ai, we will be a people who will be killed, smeared, wiped out, no more to be. God said, fine, Joshua, I will take you back to your point of failure. We're going back to Ai. And this time you're going to go back my way and do it my way. And they did. Most of you who studied anything in the Old Testament, and that's one of my pet peeves, quite frankly. Just for a second, you've already opened your Bible. Close it for a second, would you? And look at it like this. I did this with you once before about a year ago. Look at the left part of your Bible, about the two-thirds of it. That's the part where the gold leaf is still intact. All right. That's right. That's right. We are basically and certainly should be students of the New Testament, but we have lost our perspective in the Old Testament, and sometimes we wander about, as you open back to Joshua 14, wondering what God's doing, because we have wiped out thousands of years of His history in preoccupation at times with the New Testament. So I want to take you to the battle of daily living. Joshua had fought many. I was one of them. And as you know, in your study of the Old Testament, hopefully in the book of Joshua, that the book of Joshua records the three campaigns of the western side of the Jordan River. And under the great direction of God as the commander in chief, Joshua, under his direction, slices the land in half in the first campaign. Then he proceeds to conquer the northern half, what today we know as the Galilee and the southern half down toward the Sinai as we know it today. In the process of doing that, it was war after war after war after war after war after war. Every day this man got up. And as you come to chapter 14, where I'm going to be with you today, you'll find that this man, Joshua, has gotten up every day for at least seven years and has done battle. Battle was not a question mark. He was not surprised. It was coming. It was the daily battle. And yet the battle that he fought every day in those seven years, the daily warfare was the most important battle that he ever fought. Jericho, I, any of the others. It was this battle. Well, the question comes, though, how do you fight the battle of life on a regular day? Just on a regular day, a daily day. A day like any other day, and any other Monday, and any other Tuesday, and any other Wednesday, or Thursday, or Friday. And I assume that you understand that walking with the Lord Jesus is a declaration of war against at least three enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And yet most of us lose on the daily front. How do you fight the daily battle? Look at the first three verses of this chapter. Now these are the territories, Joshua 14, which the sons of Israel inherited in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun... And the heads of the households of the tribes of the sons of Israel apportioned to them for an inheritance. 
by the lot of their inheritance as the Lord commanded through Moses. Hold it. It's the wrong place. Turn to 11. You ever done that? Boy, it's a humbling and exciting moment. I was going to tell you the story of Caleb. We don't want to do that yet. Chapter 11. That's where I meant to be. Then it came about when Habim, king of Hazor, I'd know him anywhere, heard of it, that he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, the king of Shimron, the king of Ashtrath. You guys know how to say those names if you want to impress your Bible teachers over there at the Masters? Pretend like you have hot oatmeal on the end of your tongue. Say their name and spit it out at the same time. They'll all think you're Hebrew. And to the kings who were of the north in the hill country and to Abrath, son of Chemeroth in the lowland and on the heights of Dor on the west. And you say, Tom, you shouldn't be reading this either. Yes, I should. Verse 3. To the Canaanite on the east and on the west, and the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite in the hill country, the Hivite at the foot of Hermon in the land of Mizpah. Who were these guys? They were the federation. They were the northern federation that Joshua was fighting on a daily basis. Well, how do you fight on a regular daily basis? Verse 4. And they came out and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. So all these kings, having agreed to meet, came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. You wage and I wage the battle of daily living despite the odds. No matter how many we face. In verse 4 it says they were as the sands of the sea. That is the Old Testament writer's way of saying there were a bunch of them. You couldn't count them. Everywhere you looked, there were one of the Northern Federation. In addition to that, they had chariots and they had horses. One of the things that scares me today as we watch people try to live their Christian life is that they're afraid of being in the minority as a believer. They are. All of a sudden, they want to make their viewpoint their position, one that is the majority. And certainly in terms of evangelism and winning people to Christ, we want to win everybody to Christ we can. But if I understand the Testament, both old and new, it seems that the person who follows and walks with God as a general rule will always find themselves facing those who are like the sands of the sea. They will always be in the minority. But that's the way God wants it because God delights in using the faithful few. Uh, many people theologically argue over the concept of elect, but one of the implied ideas in God's elect is that there are a few as compared to all. So when you guys go to work, wherever you work, you're probably working with, uh, with exceptions, some exceptions I know, you're probably working with mostly pagan people. Now, they're probably pleasant pagans, but they're pagans. They don't know the Lord. Yesterday, I was up to my armpits in pagans. I umpire at a ballpark. And there were guys using the Lord's name, and it was very obvious the guy behind the plate, that was me, was a little different. And I got to standing back there, and it was a heated game, 4-2 to two going into the uh, fifth inning, and I'm calling him, Hey, Blue, wake up back there. Okay. Hey, you're missing a great game, buddy. Forget your glasses today. Well, it was getting a little grim back there. <laughs> I was in the minority. And one of the reasons I'm out there is my desire to see Jesus Christ begin to permeate that program that has over 700 families in this valley in it. 
They need to see Christians walking and breathing and living out there, but we're in the minority. But we're God's minority. They are as the sands of the sea, but the way you and I live our life daily for the Lord, we fight that daily battle as we continue to do what He wants us to do, even though we're in the minority. Even though we're the few, we keep doing it. You say, well, is that anywhere else in the Bible? Some of you have learned since Sunday school about God's delight in the few. In the book of Judges, a fellow named Gideon was asked to get together an army. You'll find the story in Judges chapter 7. Let's take a look there real quick. Judges chapter 7. Remember the story? He gets all of these guys together. Now, God's way of saying in Judges chapter 7 that Gideon was in the minority was that the Midianites came over the land like locusts. Now, most of us can't appreciate locusts, but you know a word you can appreciate living in Southern California? Ants. Right? I came out to my car the other night at the ballpark and it was moving. It was alive. And I looked and then these little bitty red ants were everywhere. I felt like watching it be consumed. That's what the Midianites were like. There were hundreds of thousands of them. In their case, their particular war weapon was the camel. And as you'll notice, he starts out with 32,000 people. The mathematics for you math majors starts in verse 3. Now, therefore, Judges 7, come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned, but 10,000 remained. Can you imagine getting an army together like that? How many of you believe that the Marine Corps recruits this way? Any of you boys that are afraid, you just stay in the barracks. That's not the way to do it. But God kept telling Gideon, you have too many. Most of you know in verse 5 is the test that he gives to the 10,000. Who can drink water? That's a tough test. They had to drink it the right way. From the math, I take it that 9,700 men got down on all fours and stuck their face in the pond. And I'm sure Gideon was saying, oh, God, let it be the 9,700 who know how to dip their face in water. But God said, no, you got too many guys, Gideon. I want the 300. And I'm sure Gideon stood there and thought for a second, Now, Father, we got Midianites like grasshoppers out here, and I'm going to take it around with 300 people. Look at verses 7 and 8 of that chapter. And the Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 who lapped and will give the Midianites into your hands. So let the other people go, each man to his own home. Verse 8. So the 300... Men took the people's provisions and their trumpets into their hand, and Gideon sent all the other men of Israel each to his tent, but retained the 300, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. And most of you who know your Bible know that he won. Fantastic. Would have made John Wayne proud the way they took the Midianites out. And if you have only 300 guys against thousands, those guys tend to run and yell well. <laughs> and they did. They broke their pitchers, they blew their horns, they raised havoc, and camels ran over Midianites everywhere, and Midianites killed Midianites, and God delivered them. But when that was all done, and everybody sat down and began to think, how in the world could 300 people do this? What do you think their conclusion was? Only God could do that. You see, that's why God delights in using us in the daily battle, even though we're in a minority. Because when the minority prevails... When their positions and opinions begin to influence dramatically the whole, somebody has to sit back and scratch their head and say, "Was boy, was that their master plan? 
Was that because they had great leaders? Was that because they used excellent managerial skills? Did they use the media wisely? No. It was God at work in their lives. And that's what made the difference. Turn back to Joshua chapter 11, would you? Rule number one in the daily battle. Standing order number one. Always wage war despite the odds. Always. Do not be intimidated. Some of you in your own homes are intimidated. You're the only believer there. Don't worry about that. God will use you there. The same way Jesus, who stood against the multitudes, as it were, the crowds, the same way he had to resist that pressure and eventually, with uh, 11 really faithful, saw his movement go. Stephen, who stood against the crowd, won against many and bore witness. It was in that crowd that the Apostle Paul was standing and would eventually reflect probably as the Lord spoke to him on the road back on what Stephen said. It was one man living his life daily. It should be waged without dependence upon man's tools. Look at verse 6. Joshua chapter 11. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid because of them, for tomorrow at this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. You will find in verse 9, after the battle, that's exactly what Joshua did. And Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses and he burned their chariots with fire. And you would ask, properly so, why? Those were man's tools. They were the way that the kings of the east and the kings of the north that Joshua had to battle imposed their will on others. It was through understandable, usable, effective tools of war that these people were able to conquer people. You see, it is so easy, according to Psalm 20 and verse 7, to boast in something else. Listen to Psalm 20, verse 7. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in who? The name of the Lord our God. Friends, when you get tools, young people, when you get all these tools that are available... And you begin to rely exclusively, and I underline the word exclusively on the tool, the glory quickly passes from the Lord and His name to the tool and the user of the tool. And that's not what God wants. Therefore, God told these people who didn't have any other type of instrument for war except handheld weapons to hamstring horses and to burn chariots. They weren't supposed to run around and equip themselves from what they had conquered. They were not to rely on man's tools, not only because it deflects the, Lord, the, the glory from the Lord, but because, according to Deuteronomy 17:16, it was a way in which they mimicked the way of the world. In fact, in Deuteronomy, Moses warns them that they're never to use horses in that sense, because that's like Egypt. And he says, we're not going back there. You see, as people who know the Lord in the daily struggle... Let's don't begin to rely on man's tools to carry the day. We can use them to his glory. But our danger is when we begin to believe that they're the only way that we can do something. You see, you guys are going to school and you're learning some great things. You're learning the scriptures, but you're also learning tools that men and women throughout history have designed. But the danger is that you can rely exclusively on the tool and not on the Lord who made the tool. That's why even to this day, if you travel in the land of Israel, you will very rarely find a horse. You will find donkeys. 
and you will find other kinds of four-footed beasts. But the horse is a rare bird, if I can mix my metaphors, in Israel. Because the horse throughout history was the temptation which Solomon himself fell to. Under God's direction, he was not to multiply two things, horses and wives. (laughs) I don't think there's a comparison there at all, but just horses and wives. The reason being that in the horses, he would rely on his stable. He would rely on his uh, horsemen to relieve him. His horsemen to take care of him. His horsemen to guard the kingdom rather than relying on Jehovah. The problem with the wives was when eventually he brought them in, they brought idols and led Israel astray. To whom are you looking on a daily basis? Has somebody given you a spiritual formula that you can sit down and say, pray for five minutes, read your Bible for seven minutes, and look out world? You see, even the scriptures can become a tool in its wrong place. And your reliance is upon this thing as a gimmick or a magic formula to do for you only what a walk with Jesus Christ can do. And pretty soon people are even distracted away from that. I want to show you a a verse in light of coming finals that some of you knows in the Bible, but you didn't know it applied to finals. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. When the men that Jesus trained were took before the so-called learned men of their day. These men were fishermen. One was a tax collector. One was actually a political left-winger, Simon the Zealot. When they came before the Lord, one of the things that impressed the Pharisees and those who examined them was not how well they spoke or how articulate, but that they had been with Jesus. These men did not, Peter and John, Rely on tools, and they could have. Notice verse 13 of Acts 4. Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. What were they saying? Were they dummies? No. As they heard them articulate what they knew about Jesus Christ and answer the questions that were posed to them, they didn't answer in the typical way that a person would answer if he were trained according to Jewish law. These men were different. They were unique. They did not rely on the tools and the techniques. In fact, what marked them most? Look at the last of the verse. They were marveling who? The people who interviewed them and began to recognize them as having been with whom? With Jesus. Now, some of you are going to say, all right, that's my key for finals. When asked by my parents or someone else why I got an F, it's because I want people to see Jesus in me. And I don't want to be educated or trained. (laughs) That's not what this is saying. I think you guys are sharp enough to know today that it is possible for you to rely on so many other things in the daily battle. So many tools of men, so many gimmicks. This chapel could be a gimmick, a tool that you rely on rather than relying on the Lord. There's some things in your life that you may have to burn and hamstring. They are possible things that you could rely on that would take your attention That would take the glory away from God's ability to use you. Let me tell you, as you turn back again to Joshua 11, that when these Jews got through taking this land, a bunch of former slaves who for one generation wandered in the wilderness and who came on and in their day engaged the most difficult people to conquer in history... When they did that, and all of that is recorded, and people with any degree of objectivity sit down and take a look at it, 
Who do you think they really see at work? The worst they can say is, there must have been something else. And we would say from a biblical point of view, it wasn't something else. It was someone else. Because they took them on despite the odds. The same way I'll do it every day. Because they took them on and they didn't rely on the tools of men. So that when people look at me and they get all through saying, I don't know, I have all the tools. They will see Jesus in me. The last one is in verse 15, or second to last one of chapter 11. Rule for daily warfare. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua. And so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. You should wage and I should wage my daily war in complete obedience. And I want to underline the word complete obedience. We are great negotiators. Joshua was not. God gave it to Moses. Moses gave it to Joshua. And Joshua did exactly. That's an important word. Exactly what God said. We are great negotiators. Human beings, I think, inherited from Adam the ability to negotiate God's principles and commandments. In fact, one little boy asked his Sunday school teacher one time, Why did God write the Ten Commandments on stone? His teacher, smart teacher, fifth grade boy, she looked at him and said, So they couldn't be bent. They can only be broken. See, you've got to be careful. Because sometimes we take this concept of obedience and we dismiss the word exact and we put in the word approximate. God does not work in approximates. He works in exacts. Joshua saw himself as the continuation of Moses' authority. Not as much uh, with authority as a need to obey in the same way that Moses did. He did it exactly. At our house, I have a couple of boys. I have a daughter, two boys, and uh, our boys are great negotiators. Take out the garbage. I don't, my, my foot's hurt. Do the lawn in the back. I have hay fever. You're going to help your mom with the dishes? I got a blister on my hand from playing baseball. Even though after a little bit of suggestion on my part, negotiations cease. And they go in and do it. It hasn't been exact obedience because they've kind of suggested, well, take out the garbage. Well, can I just take out one sack? No, both sacks are alive under the sink and moving. Take them out. <laughs> Get them both out. Well, they stink. That's why we want them out. But we laugh because we know it's true. And because we know that uh, as simple as that concept is, that we're the same way we've got. I want you to do this. Ah, Father, how about this? I want you to do it this way. I got a better idea. Learned in class. Don't do that. Don't do that. Do what he says when he says to do it. You're going to find that this daily living business, every day, you will be tempted to renegotiate his commandments and principles. Don't do it. Do exactly as he says when he says to do it, as Joshua did. In chapter 12, this is one of those portions of the Bible that a lot of people skip. For a number of reasons. Number one, they can't quite figure out why it's there. There's a reason it's there. 
I think one of the keys, anytime you look at a chapter like this, it's got all these guys' names. Now look at these names. Here's, here's another key on these names. Look at verse chapter 12, starting at verse 9. The king of Jericho, the king of Ai, and here they go. The king of Jerusalem, the king of Jarmuth, Eglon, Debir, Horba, Libna, Makeda, Tapua, Afek, you know. Sounds like a law firm of a number of interesting people. But as I read verses 9 through, oh, about 12, see if you guys, and I know you're really sharp because you're getting ready for finals and all that stuff, see if you can't pick up a word that shows up regularly. And the king of Jericho, one. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, one. The king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one. The king of Jarmuth, one. The king of Lachish, one. You got it? What's the key word for the first Coke at the Chug contest today? One. If you look closely down there, you'll see the word one used at least 31 times. Anytime you see a word in the Bible that's duplicated, triplicated, but then when it goes into 31-plicated, it's time to say, why is that there? Why did he say one, 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 one? Because that's the rule for the daily battle of life. One at a time. One at a time. You've got to be careful. He waged one battle at a time. Thirty-one of them listed here. And after each one, the word one. I'll tell you right now, no matter where you're at and where you're living, life lived too far in advance can overwhelm anyone. It can. And if Joshua had sat down and said, Oh, my goodness, on my calendar for May the 5th, I've got two kings. What am I going to do? He didn't do that. He went out. When they blew Reveille, he went out. He fought that king. It's like I tell my boys when we go play these ball games. They always say, who are we playing, Dad? Who's on the schedule? Doesn't matter. We play whoever shows up. Right? We don't worry if it's the biggest guy in sixth grade. We take him on. Right? Why? Well, Dad, we got to play. You know, we're playing the Angels uh, on uh, Friday night at 7 o'clock. they got a pitcher that just absolutely... And then I watch my son go out against a pitcher who throws things that I could catch with my teeth. All right, they don't hardly come in there. And he's, where's he thinking? Where's he thinking? The big guy Friday night, right? But he's going against Whiffenpoof on Wednesday. <laughs> so when he goes against Whiffenpoof, who's he got? He's thinking fireballer. So he stands up there and fans everything. And then when he shows up Friday night, what's left? Well, it works in reverse. I couldn't beat Whiffenpoof. I don't have a chance against this guy. That's it. Why? He tried to live Friday on Wednesday. You can't do that. Joshua didn't. He took them day at a time. When Reveille blew in the morning, he got up and he looked up. There they are. Same guys. More than us. That's right. More than us. We're not going to use anybody else's tools. No way. We're going to do it exactly the way God said it. And we're going to do it today. Against whoever shows out there on the plane, on the battlefield. That's the way you're going to have to live it, guys. The next four weeks, you're going to have to live it a day at a time. In the summer, you're going to have to live it a day at a time. You get any further than the day ahead, you're going to be overwhelmed. The Lord Jesus, in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, tried to make this point abundantly clear in the way that he cared for the lilies of the field and that if we would seek his kingdom and his righteousness, all these other things would be added unto us. And he, he concludes Matthew chapter 6 with, Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow. For tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You can take that to the bank. Right? 
next four weeks. Just take them a day at a time. But for goodness sake, take them a day at a time. Some of you are going to be tempted to lay in the sack and say, well, I'm going to have devotions four or five times before I go. Uh, you know, I'm going to go to uh, the bed church with Pastor Sheets. Sister Pillow is the organist there. And I'm, I'm going to, you know, and you just, you just crawl into a cocoon because you're living Thursday. Got a final. Haven't studied. It's Monday. I'm dead. No, you're not. Monday's got all its trouble. When you're living and fighting the daily battle, you live it a day at a time. You'd be amazed at the victory God will give. A few years ago in our family, we had the perfect pastoral pet. It was a turtle. It was. At our house, we're not big on pets. It's always been an amazement to me, and I hope I don't offend anyone. You know, we build houses for certain purposes, don't we? Sure, we do. I mean, oh, you know, we build houses to keep animals where? Out. But what happens? They come in. Birds, dogs, cats. Here they are. You go into somebody's house, and there they are. Oh, this is poopsie and whoopsie, and there you got them all over. And, you know, oopsie, made a mistake, you know. It's crazy. We also build houses to keep plants out. Nobody cultivates grass in their den, do they? But until recently in my house, I had to use a machete to get to the, the mirror in the bathroom to shave. My wife had a growing green thing there. I don't know what it was. So you can tell at our house we're a little weird. But we don't have an official, we only had one dog in our life, and we, were, we thanked God privately when he ran away from home. It's true. True. Hard-hearted the truth. So when we found this turtle, we found a real thing. Because up in Colorado, when you take a turtle to Colorado, when the winter comes, they go to sleep for four months. So we used to put him in a box. When the kids wanted a pet, they come home, Oh, we want a pet, we want a pet. We would just say, hey... Little bit. We named him a little bit. Little bitty turtle. Little bit. We named him. Get little bit out. So they get a little bit out and they'd pet him. And, you know, and, and, and turtles are rather nondescript. They don't do a lot. You know, just kind of around. <laughs> and you'd pat him on. The only way you can tell he's alive except for a scratching on the linoleum floor was when his eyes blinked. Okay. So we'd take him out of that pet a little bit and put him back, you know. And then it'd, oh, it'd be about November... We'd get a box that says, turtle, do not touch. And we would put him in there, and we'd put a little lettuce in there and some other green stuff that was left over, and then we would stick him in the top of the closet. And that little rascal would sleep till about March or April. It's true. So what we would do... Every, every year, about, about Easter, we have resurrection. A little bit come out. We bring him out. It's about the third year we had a little bit, second or third year. And a little bit, by the way, had, was a trooper. He had been hit with a baseball bat, stepped on, run over by bicycles, and still survived. He had taken major, major, major blows and still blinked at you and ate lettuce. It was about mid-March, Sharon and I were moving furniture, and we had something we had to get out of the closet. And I opened the closet and just about passed out. And I thought, uh-oh. Little bit has passed on. And the kids say, oh, let's see him. And I looked at him and said, you don't want to see him. What happened? I said, well, little bit is dead. 
We had a brief memorial service and dumped him in the dumpster out by the, the church there. And I got to thinking about it a little bit. You know, that rascal survived incredible things. He was always up for the big blow. But he just couldn't stand daily living. And he died. He just couldn't live daily. When things were quiet and calm, a little bit just kind of shut down. And he shut down so well that he just wasn't anymore. <laughs> With all due respect to your appearance and your intentions, we're all a lot like turtles. We can take the major blows. Some of you have come through this year already in this school year. You've seen God do some great things and overcome some tremendous crises. You were up for the big battles. But you're vulnerable in daily living. You're vulnerable. I'm vulnerable. Let's live it like Joshua fought it so that God will get the glory every day in my walk. Let's pray. Father, some of the th truth that's tucked away in the history of the Scriptures is right up to date. Thank you for the life of Joshua and this very brief glimpse that we've had of what was just a regular day in his life and how the result was not only victory but honor to your name because he chose to wage daily war in a way that honored your name. If we tried to explain this to somebody else, they couldn't understand it. It would seem like that this man and his wars are thousands of years and thousands of miles removed from us. But everybody who's praying with me knows right now that every day, in one sense, is a battle. Maybe the biggest battle we've ever fought. I pray that at the end of this four weeks and into the summer and return in the fall, we will have no victims of the battle of daily living, but victory, so that not we will be named or the school we attend or the church we go to, but that people's attention will be riveted on the God who delights in giving us daily victory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.